Good morning. Welcome to the end of summer. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be here to be able to say something uh, this morning about the Psalms. Uh, well, Simon said we'll be looking actually at 15 Psalms, starting 120 up to 134. Uh, so hopefully that's, that's two a minute, I think. So we'll see how we go. If you don't recognize me, this is just a shirt I've worn for disguise. Um, I, it is Dan still. Um, so if you want to find in your Bible or electronic substitute the, your uh, Psalm 120, 134 and put your finger in that, we'll, uh, I'm not going to speak in detail about anyone, but we'll, we'll pick up bits and pieces as we go through. But I guess before we get in, stuck in, I feel like I need to give you a couple of warnings. And the first one is that there's no way I can plumb the depths of 15 Psalms in 30 minutes. I'm going to leave plenty of depths for you to plumb. But I guess what I hope to show is that there are depths there to be looked into and that there's more than what I'm going to say that, that you, you, know, you will do well to go and look again at. Uh, and secondly, I feel like we need a word on metaphors. I guess I'm not always sure that the the visual imagery of the Psalms translates that well to us in our context today. Um, I'm a scientist and I like to try and do experiments to understand things. So I thought this morning we'd do a little experiment to see if we can understand some of the visual imagery of the Psalms a little better. Um, I'm going to need a volunteer, Graham, if that's okay. You can sit there. You can say that. You can say that. You'll understand why I chose Graham as a volunteer in a minute. It says in Psalm 133, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, I, I mean, I've, I've sort of got a beard, but I, I don't really, I can't grasp the visceral nature uh, of this kind of simile that the psalmist was using. What is it about beard and oil that, that is so good? But we've got some oil here. And um, just while we carry on, I'm going to give Graham a couple of dob, little dibs, and he can uh, get rubbing it into his beard. And then he can sort of explain to us again the, uh, the visual imagery of the psalms. So, if you hold your hands out. There you go. A little goes a long way. It's kind of neutral. But rub it in. Rub it. Really get it going, and really rub it in. And uh, we'll come back to you in a minute and see how it goes. If anyone else has got a beard and wants to have a go, John, John. Oh, come on. We, uh, rub it between your hands, and then that might be a bit much. Do your hair if you've got leftovers. So I'll come back to you in a minute for some feedback on what unity is really like. Uh, but like many of the metaphors used, you know, a little digging will get us a long way. It's not my, I'm not going to do here is dig through all the different metaphors that get used in these Psalms as hundreds. Um, but I think it would be a fruitful thing to do. Uh, even if we did that, I got, get the sense that we'd miss some of the kind of, uh, earthly kind of visceral nature of it. He, he, this is something he'd seen and experienced. It's, uh, you know, these, these pictures are a picture of abundance. They're a picture of something holy. They're a picture of something refreshing uh, and cleansing. Um, what we can experience, however, is the things the psalmist talks about, the unity that he's describing. It's just that we may need our own language to kind of sum that up better uh, for us today. But So have we got any new language, Graham, John? Any kind of 
reflections on, on how good and pleasant is it to have oil on your beard? Four, five? I mean, give us a mark out of ten, anything. Out of ten? Yeah. It's a, it's a weird it's a bit, thing. A bit underwhelming? I don't yeah, know. Underwhelming. Underwhelming. It's not really overdoing it for me. Really. Maybe it wasn't trickling down on the collar yeah, well, of your I don't robe think it was the, I think that might have been the problem. Okay. Yeah. And maybe because I'd washed a bit more than perhaps. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. John, anything to add? Any? Well, well, I do feel a bit more moisturised now. Oh, good. Well, there you go. That's a, a, a small picture of what unity in the church is like. A bit more moisturised. And, and so does the microphone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the Psalms of Ascent, then. Uh, first of all, they are songs from a story. Um, when we approach the Psalms, that's mainly for my daughter's benefit. I wonder if she'll see it when she looks at the back. But we, um, when we approach the Psalms, there's at least four levels of reading them that are appropriate. We can try, and we maybe ought to try, to look at the original intent of the person that wrote it. Secondly, we can kind of consider the use of that song by those who sung it throughout the years, throughout Israel's history. Uh, we can, thirdly, we can consider the kind of rethinking the fresh sense of meaning that the early church saw in these psalms once they, you know, all that they understood through Jesus had been revealed. And we'll try and do a bit of all three of those today. Fourthly as well, I think we ought to pause to reflect on the, the added meaning and the impact when all of this gets set to music. Uh, it says that Psalm 56 was set to the tune of A Dove on Distant Oaks, which, to be honest, doesn't, I'm not, I don't know, doesn't, it's not going to do it for me, I sense. But Psalm 57 and 58 was set to do not destroy, which sounds to me like a pretty radical early Jewish speed metal, which <laughs> I really, I really wish we could have appreciated today. But sadly, we're not going to. But um, So we, in all of those four things, then we have, the, in the light of all that, what, what's our response going to be? One of the key ways, I think, of understanding the first three is that, like any, any song, any good song, I mean, these songs are part of a story. Like all good musicals, which Frozen is clearly the pinnacle of human achievement, um, <laughs> the songs and the story mutually reinforce one another. The story without the songs is just bland, but the songs without the story quickly drift into meaninglessness. Without the backdrop of Elsa and Anna's lost childhood friendship, stories about a, a snowman just don't mean a lot. But without the songs, we wouldn't appreciate the true depth of loss felt. But without the... I think I may be risk getting drawn into a world I'll, I'll never escape from. But, um, but, yeah. but before we look at the songs, we need a quick recap of the story, I think. So a good God made a good earth with the intention of filling it with his glory, his wise and kindly rule. He made man in his image with the chief task of bearing that image to the world, filling it with his glory. But because of sin, the image of God in man got corrupted to such an extent that man was not able to reflect God's glory to the world. He couldn't accomplish his chief task. So God chose Israel to be the agent of rescue for mankind. That through, all, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed, he said. That creation again might be filled with the glory of God. But though he chose them, and though he dwelt with them, Israel too failed to bear the image of God. But God had promised. God had promised to fill the earth. 
And God is faithful to his promises. And it's that kind of unresolved tension of the story that the Psalms inhabit. There's a glory yet to be seen that we haven't seen. If we really want to understand the story, we need this kind of emotional clarity of the Psalms to help us. So that's what they do. So this is true for all of the Psalms, but the Psalms of Ascent particularly inhabit this story. The themes of a faithful God, one who dwells with them. We'll come back to this. One who's rescued them, but whose rescue is still needed, is there within all the Psalms. Psalm 124 is a reflection and a remembrance of the Exodus, what happened when they got rescued from Egypt. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed and our mouths were filled with laughter. But he goes on to say, Restore our fortunes, Lord. There's been a restoration, yet there's still more restoration to happen. So as well as being part of the whole, you know, these, these songs have their own specific character, these Psalms of Ascent. They were arranged, as Jeremy said, most likely for people walking on pilgrimage up to the temple in Jerusalem. They were songs for a journey, and they have a nature which fits their purpose. So when you're packing for a journey, you don't, you don't take everything you own, you just... You take what you can, what you need, and you kind of usually squash it down as much as you can to fit it in for the journey. So what do we get? What do we get when we've squashed it all down? What's left? We get, we get a lot of talk of mountains. We get a lot of a sense of anticipation with details to kind of whet our appetite about the journey to come. We get prayers for the journey, and we get cries of dependency on Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. And we get a progression. We get a journey. We start in distress. We end up wrapped up in a scene of worship that Jeremy started with us this morning. Hands raised in praise to the world's true Lord. We get a story in a song in search of a destination. So these are songs for a journey. Um, this is a, just a quick map of Jerusalem. You can see it, is, it occupies this kind of central ridge of mountains uh, in Israel. So with any good journey, it's important to know where we start from. And in this case, Psalm 120 doesn't make for cheerful reading. If you look at it, it's, we're in distress. We're far from God. We're surrounded and probably compromised by lies and deceit. We're at enmity with our neighbours. And we are, again, where our cultural distance fails us a bit. We're somewhere near Meshech and Kedar which, I don't, who knows, but it doesn't sound good. I'm not sure it's the equivalent of saying we're from Coventry or, you know, I don't know, I don't know. Apologies if anyone from Coventry is here. But, you know, here. but here again in the same psalm is the catalyst for the change to come, the understanding that, as it says in verse 1, when I call on the Lord, he answers me. These psalms not only describe a journey, but actually the singing of them produces one that they do so, it's not just because of the words that are there, but because of how they were designed to be sung. Psalm 121 is a perfect example. This man just out of Meshech needs a little encouragement. And, it's, and he gets it in the form of a song sung to him. Not to God, but to each other, actually. So after verse 1 and 2 in the psalm, where the singer lifts up his own eyes to God and the journey that's to come, the rest is a prayerful song to his or her companions on that journey. And since it's a journey that's undertaken together, actually it's likely that these companions were actually going to be the answers to this prayer, this prayerful song. Um, 
Of all the things we need for a journey, companionship's number one. Prayerful companionship, better than all. So we're going to sing, we're not going to sing, we're going to say Psalm 121 together. If you can go on to the next slide. What I'd just encourage you to do, just as a little experiment, if you can get into groups of two, if that's possible, two, two, you can do two, good. And the first case, we're just going to read Psalm uh, verses one and two, just to, quietly to yourselves. But then with the person next to you, what I'd like you to do is take it in turns to read a verse to each other. Okay, so if that's clear, so we're going to read Psalms 1 and 2 quietly on our own. But then I want you to, with your, with your partner, read those verses to each other. So starting from verse 3, read verse 3, the next one reads verse 4 and so on. Is that clear? Okay, what, we, what we've just done is, uh, it's just a small, I think it barely glimpses the kind of sense of togetherness and sense of being there for each other that would have been there when that was all set to song in a great throng on a journey up to Jerusalem. But it's this companionship and a, a godly friendship which takes seriously the fact that we're bound to each other. That is what initiates the journey, in fact. Psalm 122 says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. The travelling companies, many together rejoicing on the fact that they were called on to go to God's house. But kind of the, the implication beneath that is that without that invitation, this desire would have lain dormant. It was at risk of being unfulfilled, this desire to go to the house of the Lord. But having been called on, it was allowed to be fulfilled and to flourish. And I guess when Caroline shared, Caroline shared what she did this morning about you know, this, the flourishing that is there when God's Spirit comes, it made me think of this as well. You know, there's, there's dormant seeds that we have a chance to call up from one another. You know, we get the, the opportunity and the, the good fortune of being able to do with God some of that unlocking. Psalm 133 as well picks up a bit on that. It talks about the Jew of Hermon being found on Mount Zion. And these were two mountains that were many miles and miles apart, but you can imagine this kind of miraculous dew, the refreshing that it would bring to this place. So I don't, I don't feel like I need to labour the point, but to say that walking metaphorically and maybe literally too with people here will lead to significant change in us. So be ready to call others to go to the house of the Lord with you and be ready to join in that journey too. So these songs are not songs just of a journey, but they're they're songs of a home. They're songs of homecoming. It's hard to capture, I think, the many levels at which excitement was engendered when we think about a journey to Jerusalem. We're not often involved in a pilgrimage. Even if we are, it's often it's maybe a one-off to an unknown place. Exciting though it may be, but it's different. I think Jerusalem was a special city. It was vast compared to the other cities in Israel. It was beautiful. It was historic. It was full of memories. It was that, and I guess because of the ritual sacrifice, it smelled permanently of roast dinners, which I think maybe, <laughs> sorry, that's the wrong point to make at this point. But because of all that, it's, it's very hard to capture what this meant. But I guess if you imagine an intensely patriotic, fiercely royalist Londoner returning home after a long absence to go and celebrate St. George's Day with his family at Buckingham Palace at the invitation of the Queen. And this is something about all those multiple dimensions of life wrapped up. And I think it's this love of home that helps make sense of some of the otherwise 
bits that kind of, I, I kind of delight in how brilliantly weird they seem, which says things like, Jerusalem is built like a city that's closely compacted together. That's not something I've ever kind of gone through in my quiet time and gone, oh yeah, <laughs> great. But it, it is part, it's all wrapped up with this love of home that's, that's being expressed. And it's this love of home which gives weight to the, you know, the appreciation of the mountains that surround uh, Jerusalem that he talks about in Psalm 125. And it adds depth to the prayers of blessing for, in Psalm 122. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls. And in Psalm 128 as well. This, this is a place that was loved by people. It, 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 it's, uh, you know, it was their home in many ways. So these are songs of home, not just in the sense of place, but also of family and belonging too. It was a, it was a journey that man, woman and child went on together. On together, um, if you remember Jesus and his family coming back from their pilgrimage, and uh, when Jesus was just a child, you know, this was a whole whole journey of the family went together. In Psalm 130, uh, 131, it says, "Like the winged child that was with me," or at least it says that in the NRSV. It doesn't; it's slightly different in the NIV. You know, and as well as this, we see we see the prayers of blessing over the family. We see. In Psalm 127, an affirmation of children. These are, the kids would have been all around. It would, how great it would have been for them to hear this sung out, that your children are a blessing from the Lord. This feels pretty good as a kid. You're a blessing from the Lord, kids. Not, interest, not interested. Thanks. thanks. Um, Psalm 128, like 121, was a, not just a blessing to each other, but it was a blessing over each other's family life. It was to be sung as a prayer over each other. And in Psalm 133, we have all the family here together. Despite the kind of underwhelming nature that Graham and, and, and John felt, this was a euphoric vision. You know, this was, this was something, a kind of vision of oneness that the psalmist had seen. But it, it wasn't just a kind of, it, it wasn't a vision out of nothing. It wasn't an unreal vision. It was something he'd actually seen. He'd seen all the tribes that he talks about in one th- Psalm 132, going up together to the house of the Lord. And he saw the kind of oneness and unity there. And it, it kind of led him into song. It was such a great vision. So like our Cockney monarchist from earlier, the uh, sense of homecoming was closely related to the royal appointment that they knew was awaiting them. They knew what they were expecting. But what they also make clear is that they don't need to wait until Jerusalem to meet with the king. So these are songs that are in God's key. I guess it, these songs testify to the unseen companion that was with them through the journey. It almost seems too trite to say that these are songs about God because they're so much more than that. These are like songs written in God's key. These are songs written in God's time signature. Whatever notes on the scale are played, whether it's a major or a minor chord, whatever tempo and whatever the fill. Everything is inseparable from him. Oh, to be that kind of people whose lives are like that, whose lives are, whose talk, whose song, whose life is so wrapped up in him. He's the answer of prayer. These are some of just the descriptions of God that you find there. He's our helper. He's the maker of heaven and earth. We get that three times. He's our protector, the one enthroned in heaven. He's on our side. He's the rescuer from our enemies, the banisher of evildoers, the restorer of Zion. 
He cuts us free from the wicked. He's the righteous one, the forgiver, full of unfailing love, the one who will redeem Israel, the chooser of Zion, the one who made a promise to David. This is the Holy One of Israel. And more than anything else, these psalms are about a journey to see him, a journey to his holy place. This is a picture of um, the Solomon uh, when he dedicated the temple back in, you can read about it in 2 Chronicles. These were songs about a God who'd chosen to inhabit a temple in Jerusalem. Everyone on the journey knew that going there was the goal that they had in mind. The temple was clearly understood as God's dwelling place. And that kind of, in a way, strikes us as a little bit odd, perhaps. But the dedication of the temple that you can read about in 2 Chronicles, chapter 5 to 7, um, has two instances where God's glory fills the temple. First of all, in chapter 5, we see the glory of God coming as a cloud. The priests couldn't even go in there because it was so overwhelming. And then in chapter 6, I think we have the glory of God coming like fire to fill the temple. I don't think it could be clear. Here we have the cloud and the fire coming to fill the temple. Anyone who'd walked through the wilderness or knew the stories of walking through the wilderness with the pillar of cloud and the fire to guide them, God's presence there with them, couldn't help but now know that God wasn't wandering anymore. God had taken up residence with them. God had come to dwell with them. Solomon himself knew, though, when he, was, when he made this prayer, he was asking a bit much when he prayed for God to come and dwell there. He said, will God really dwell on earth with human beings? He asks in chapter 6, verse 18. But he did. The Israelites knew well enough that God couldn't be contained in a building. That, that way just led to idolatry, to golden calves and statues and reducing God to a form. They knew that. But they knew what they'd seen. The living God, in some real way, could be said to live and dwell in the temple. So this language of the Psalms is, is, is kind of imbued, in, it's throughout the Psalms of Ascent. Their talk of the house of the Lord, and we shouldn't just gloss over that, we should pause to reflect what it means. It is the place where God dwells. It's referred to in Psalm 122 and 134. Psalm 128 talks about God blessing you from Zion, the place where he is. Psalm 132 is the fullest statement of this, and it, it, it talks about David's retrieval of the Ark of the Covenant earlier on. And then in verse 13 and 14, which I'll read, it says this. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. So the temple is the place God dwells, the place on earth where his realm, that's heaven, touches it. Or to say the same thing in another way, which is something the Psalms do a lot. This is the point on heaven which is touched by earth. This is the intersection of God's realm and ours. But remember the story. The purpose is not a holiday, God taking up rest in Jerusalem to relax, put his feet up. Rest is associated with rule, with enthronement, with the blessing of God flowing from Zion. This was where the story was heading. In terms of the journey of these Psalms, this is the destination. 
We're all headed to join in the praise of God, the maker of heaven and earth in his house. We may have come from Meshech, but now we're home. Now we're in God's house. No wonder the psalmist in 122 was glad. But 500 years after the temple was built, it was destroyed. God's people went into exile. God moved out. There was a new temple, you can read about it in Ezra, but unfortunately God didn't show up in the same way. You compare the accounts of Ezra's with that in two chronicles, it's kind of sorrowful, it's mournful. People at the time said, it's not like the old temple. You know, there, was, there was no sense in which God had come back to dwell with his people. The, kind of, the way in which those songs were sung in that period would have been very different. Uh, imagine, they said in Psalm 130, or in 126, where he mentioned it, restore our fortunes, Lord. That prayer takes up on a whole new meaning when the temple is not there. In Psalm 130, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. In verse 7, it says, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. He will himself redeem Israel from all their sins. Now these, the, the, the nature of these psalms changed with Israel's fortunes. That's not to say there was separation from God on every level. But it's true to say on a corporate level, they couldn't say in the same way that God was with them. They needed God to restore their fortunes. So forgiveness and restoration needed both the return from exile, but it needed God to come back. They needed the homecoming of their king. 500 years later, they're still waiting for restoration. The story is still waiting in tension. The songs still take that note of tension. But God is still faithful. Another man went on a journey all over Israel, demonstrating that the kingdom of God was at hand. The enthronement of God was happening. You can't have a kingdom without a reigning king. Wherever he went, he seemed to upstage the very idea of a temple. He shortcut it by offering forgiveness there and then on the spot. He showed disregard for the purity code which was so bound up with the temple system. In everything he did, he was remaking Israel through healing, like Al talked about this morning through the prophetic action of calling 12 disciples, through feasting and not fasting, through eating with sinners. But the life of this remade, reconstituted Israel didn't revolve around the temple anymore. It revolved around him. It revolved around Jesus. So with his companions, he went up to Jerusalem. And as he arrived, the crowds cast their cloaks on the ground before him and welcomed back their coming king. He prophesied against the temple, symbolically cleansing it, it, leaving it for dead. Imagine if you were there that Passover as a Jew, having gone up to Jerusalem, singing these same songs about anticipation of being in God's holy place, only to get there and find Jesus proclaiming God's judgment on it. But this was God then, returning home. This was God returning home, coming back to dwell with his people. But Jerusalem didn't recognize the time of God's coming. 
As John says in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The locus of the journey has changed. The story has a new chapter. God has been faithful to his promise to rescue all mankind through Israel. And now the dwelling place of God has taken up residence in us. It says in 1 Corinthians, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells among you? We have the Messiah in us, the hope of glory. At Pentecost, the fire of God came on people, just like it filled that first temple. Finally, the temple's been validated again. It's just a different kind of temple. Will God really dwell on earth with human beings? Yes, and in us. So the story continues still, but we know where it will lead because he is faithful to his promises. In his people and in his church, God is enthroned and he will bless the earth from there. He will fill the earth with his glory flowing out from within us. As Helen said, his kingdom will have no end. And as Steve picked up on, it is a spiritual kingdom that comes as his spirit fills us. So when we read these Psalms, we do so differently to how they were read before. We may not know where Meshech was still. Someone's going to have to go and find out where Meshech was and enlighten me a little bit. But what we do know is that God's intention was to use us to fill Meshech and places like it with his kingly rule. We may still feel distress and still feel need and still need faithful companions to call us up to what we are, which is the temple of God together. We may feel like a temple that's still in need of Jesus' cleansing action. But we are still the dwelling place of God. We may see many places not filled with the glory of God, but he is faithful to his promise to fill the earth with his glory, with his everlasting kingdom. Um, To finish, what I thought we'd do is read a a prayer together. I'd like to have set it to music, but that's not really... uh, It wasn't time, what can I say? Um, But despite the lack of music, maybe it'd be good if we could stand. Um, Some of it, I guess you'll already know, is designed to be sung to God. Some of it, you need to turn around and look each other in the eye and say it to each other. Hopefully that's obvious which bits you need to do that for. Um, Right, let's say it together. I call on you, Lord, though I feel far from you. My hope is in God, his Messiah who dwells in me and his spirit who fills me. Jesus is there to cleanse you if you need He will fill you again if you feel dry. If you are thirsty, come to him and drink. May the Lord bless your family. May your children know the blessing of God. May the church reflect the image of God. May his likeness be found in each of us. God, the faithful one, has rescued us. God, may you continue to rescue those in need. Now he who is maker of heaven and earth, 
May the Lord fill the whole earth with his glory. Amen.